This is C-SPAN's First Ladies in Their Own Words podcast, listening to the voices of eight modern First Ladies. In this episode, you'll hear from the 42nd First Lady, Hillary Clinton. Born Hillary Diane Rodham in 1947, the Chicago, Illinois native grew up the oldest of three children. She graduated from Wellesley College in 1969 and then on to Yale Law School in 1973. While at Yale, she met fellow law student Bill Clinton and the two married in 1975. During the 1970s, Hillary Rodham Clinton worked as a lawyer and a law professor at the University of Arkansas Law School. She continued her professional career while the First Lady of Arkansas between 1979 to 81 and again from 83 to 1992. In January 1993, Hillary Rodham Clinton became the First Lady when Bill Clinton took office as president. Next, an appearance in the fall of 1992 by Hillary Clinton, then wife of Democratic presidential nominee Bill Clinton, at a Catholic Charities program called Children with Children in Newark, New Jersey. I think most Americans know that issues like the Family and Medical Leave Act that Senator Dodd has uh, championed, that's a family value issue that President Bush is about to veto again. A good job is a family value issue. Decent health care so you don't have to worry about what happens to the members of your family, that's a family value issue. Family values are very important, but we need to look at what is going on in the lives of families in America and come up with positive solutions to help them. You've taken a lot of hits during this campaign. What does the fact that even at one point the campaign was sort of reduced to comparing chocolate chip cookie recipes, there was a lot of attacks at the Republican convention, what does this say to you about society's willingness to accept a more aggressive role by women in politics and in society? Oh, I don't think that's really at issue. I think that uh, what you see is a a kind of desperate political strategy to distract people and divert them from what's really at stake in this election. And uh, it will move in whatever direction they think will help them. It doesn't matter whether the truth is there or not. And I think that's sad and it's a little disillusioning, but that's to be expected. Do you feel a bitterness about uh, the attacks on uh, you or your husband? No, I mean, it's hard to feel anything about attacks that aren't true and that are so Uh, cynically, politically motivated as those were coming out of the Republican convention. It is sad, though, that when we have so many problems in this country, uh, that the other party would spend days on distractions, diversions, untruths, instead of all of us trying to do what we could do to help solve those problems. And that's what I want this election to be about. That was Hillary Rodham Clinton demonstrating her husband's assertion that if Americans voted him into the White House, they'd get a package deal. Buy one, get one free, he'd say. As First Lady, Hillary Clinton spoke for the administration on a wide-ranging issues, child development, women's rights, race relations, climate change, literacy, historic preservation, and most controversially, health care reform. And she forged a path for a First Lady, running for and winning a United States Senate seat. You'll hear in her own voice how she experienced her White House years, featuring footage from C-SPAN's video library. Her first priority was health care reform. Before the first year the Clinton administration was out, she was testifying before Congress on what she believed needed to be done. This is Hillary Clinton in her own words. Uh, Mrs. Clinton, we welcome you. This is a... Uh, an auspicious occasion in every sense. I want to thank you and uh, the members of this committee for the uh, many courtesies and uh, good advice and hours of uh, your time that you have spent with me as a whole committee and that 
many of you have spent with me individually. In the past few weeks, Mr. Chairman, you and other distinguished members of this committee have raised tough and important questions about how best we can finance health care reform. This is, as we all know, a subject of great complexity, one that has been studied exhaustively, but which is still subject to a great many questions. We have to, in the coming weeks and months ahead, work closely together to understand as fully as we are able the kinds of issues that are raised by the reforms that are offered, not only by the President, but by the Republican senators represented here on this committee and others. We have to be sure that we get the best value for the health care dollars we currently spend and that we do the best job we can to reform the system so that health care is delivered more efficiently at higher quality to all Americans. The simple fact is that Americans are spending nearly now $1 trillion a year on health care, and we are not getting our money's worth. And I would argue that, you know, the economic theory of the cost disease, which you know so well, which points out the difference in service and labor-intensive services, often uses the example that a Mozart quartet being played in the 18th century and being played in the 20th century still requires four people. There's no productivity increase if you're going to play that quartet. The problem with the American health care system is if you can imagine that quartet has added people to hold the chairs, to hand the violins in, and has required the musicians to stop at the third or fourth page of the music to call somebody to make sure they can go on to the next bar. And that is the kind of waste and inefficiency that permeates our health care system. And we believe very strongly that if we don't set the kind of very strong goals that we can achieve in both the public and the private sector, we will continue to reward this piecework, inefficient delivery system that does not guarantee quality at all. I think most of us on this committee would be more than pleased to get all of our health care from a Mayo Clinic and we would get it at much less of a cost than if we went to many of the hospitals within a few miles of this building. President Clinton asked the First Lady to take the lead in investigating health problems experienced by Gulf War veterans. This is from January 1997 in the White House Roosevelt Room. Thank you, and please be seated and welcome to the White House. I am uh, pleased to see all of you here today for the presentation of this uh, report of the Presidential Advisory Committee on Gulf War Veterans Illnesses. The work of this committee reflects the administration's commitment to finding answers for the thousands of brave men and women suffering from un undiagnosed illnesses after serving in the Persian Gulf War. And it reflects the president's abiding commitment to being responsive to and responsible for our veterans and their families. I know that there are members who are here of the commission, and I'd like them, if they would, just to stand so that we could see all. Oh, they're all standing. Good. We appreciate very much the time and effort that went into uh, this service. And I know firsthand how important and difficult your task has been. Over the last four years, the president and I have received many heart-wrenching letters from Gulf War veterans and family members. Many veterans and their family members said they felt that their country had forgotten them. 
So in the fall of 1994, the president asked me to explore the issues surrounding the health needs of Gulf War veterans and to look into the federal government's efforts to address their concerns. I met with officials from the Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, and the Department of Health and Human Services to determine if we were doing the very best we could to respond to our veterans' needs and to facilitate research into their illnesses. I met with representatives of the American Legion and the veterans of foreign wars who shared their own observations and told me of their efforts to bring more serious national attention to these illnesses. And I visited with individual veterans, active duty soldiers and their families. At Walter Reed Hospital and the Veterans Hospital here in Washington, I listened to veterans as they tried to describe to me what it was like to live day after day, year after year, not knowing why they had become sick. I heard stories of hardworking men and women who could no longer keep steady jobs and support their families because of their illnesses. One veteran officer who had been diagnosed as 100% disabled told me about the healthy and active life he had led before his tour in the Persian Gulf and about his frustration in seeking effective treatments for his symptoms. In February 1995, I reported to the president and the chief of staff on these findings and recommended some steps the administration could take in the future, including the creation of a blue ribbon panel to investigate these issues further. And I had the privilege of testifying at the first meeting of this committee in August 1995. And I've been following the work that has been done closely ever since. So I'm particularly gratified to be here today. And I'm also gratified that our government is making progress and being responsive in taking affirmative steps to do all that can be done on behalf of our veterans and on behalf of future members of our forces who might be put in harm's way in the future. I want to thank all who served uh, for their persistent efforts on this committee and for considering thoroughly the diverse and strongly held opinions, theories, explanations, and evidence about these illnesses. But I particularly want to thank Gulf War veterans and their families uh, for taking the time to share their experiences with this committee. The First Lady was a familiar figure on international stages. In 1998, she traveled to Belfast to speak about peace in Northern Ireland. So it's um, a fantastic privilege for me to welcome, to introduce to a role model to me and to young women all around the world, uh, Mrs. Hillary Rodham Clinton, First Lady of the United States. She has shown that women, given a real voice, can make a lasting difference in their communities, in their countries, and in the whole world. Thank you very much, Fiona, for that introduction and even more for your adding your vital voice to this conference. I'm sure if you need a note to be excused from school, there are about a thousand of us who would sign it. The road to peace will never be easy. 
But the world has also seen how no fires, bombs, or terrorists will ever turn you back. When my husband and I go to Oma tomorrow, we will pay tribute to those who were murdered by the enemies of peace. They were mostly women and children. They were Catholic and Protestant, Unionist and Nationalist, young and old. They were people simply living their lives, working at a drapery store, hanging out with friends, buying school uniforms for their children. The terrorists targeted the people of Northern Ireland, and in response, it was the people, all the people, who bravely stood side by side to say, hatred and violence will no longer have a place here. We have chosen ballots, not bombs, democracy, not division. We have resolved to live in peace, and we will never go back. We will only move forward. And as you do, please know that America will stand with you. How appropriate it is that this conference takes place the first week of school, not only because it's a time for new friends and new beginnings, but also because ultimately our children are the reason we are here. For 30 years, parents dropped their children off for school, tucked in their shirts, kissed them goodbye, and dreamed of a time when they could play outside free from violence. Dreamed of a time when their children's opportunities and destinies would never again be limited by their place of worship or political party, or by whether they're a boy or a girl. Today, there is real hope that this dream, once expressed through poetry and protest, will finally be a reality for children in Northern Ireland. None of this would have been possible were it not for the courage and strength of generations of women. Though they may have worshiped separately on Sunday, seven days a week, they all said a silent prayer for their husbands to return safely home. Seven days a week, they lived in fear that the unspeakable would happen, that they would be forced to bury their own child. And yet seven days a week, they carried on with hope and prayer that the future would be brighter, free of troubles and heartbreak. Wives, mothers, sisters, daughters, few were household names. But having seen their lives, their families, and communities torn apart by violence, women came together as women have always done. You're listening to First Ladies in Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. Political scandals marred the Clinton years, culminating during Bill Clinton's second term with his impeachment and Senate acquittal. Hillary Clinton was asked in 1994 about the couple's credibility during what came to be known as the Pink Suit Press Conference. The recent news reports about the First Lady's cattle future earnings and with all these whitewater allegations, many of us Americans are having a hard time with your credibility. How can you earn our trust back? Is there a fundamental distrust of the Clintons in America? Well, I hope not. I mean, that would be um, uh, something that I would regret very much. 
Um, I do think that um, we are transition figures, if you will. Um, we don't fit easily into a lot of our pre-existing categories. And I think that having been independent, having made decisions, um, it's a little difficult for us as a country, maybe, to make the transition of having a woman like many of the women in this room sitting in this house. So I think that the standards and to some, ex to some extent the expectations and the demands have changed and I'm trying to find my way through it um, and trying to figure out how best to be true to myself and how to fulfill my responsibilities to my husband and my daughter and and the country. Two years later, the First Lady appeared before a grand jury. The question, was there any wrongdoing concerning the Clintons and a failed real estate development known as Whitewater? Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton arriving at the U.S. District Court to answer questions concerning her work for the failed Arkansas Savings and Loans at the center of the Whitewater criminal investigation. This was at 1.45 this afternoon. She's the first First Lady to appear before a grand jury. Here are a couple of comments. I just want to say before I go in that I am happy to answer the grand jury's questions and look forward to telling them everything I know with the hope that it will help them in their investigation. And I have to go in now, but when I come out, I will see you all then. Thank you. Well, you're all still here, I see. I was glad to have the opportunity to tell the grand jury what I have been telling all of you. I do not know how the billing records came to be found, where they were found, uh, but I am pleased that they were found because they confirm what I have been saying. Now, it's been a long day, and I will take a question or two from uh, some of you. How wide-ranging, how wide-ranging were the questions? They go beyond the simple appearance of the, uh, of the records at the White House? There were other matters uh, uh, discussed, but most of it concerned the billing records. Would you rather have been somewhere else today? <laughs> oh, about a million other places today, indeed. Well, I look forward to being able to tell the grand jury um, what I know. Um, to be able to answer their questions. Um, I, like everyone else, would like to know the answer about how those documents uh, showed up after all these years. It would have been certainly to my advantage in trying to bring this uh, matter to a conclusion if they had been uh, found several years ago. So I tried to be as uh, helpful as I could uh, in their uh, investigation efforts. But now I am going home and I hope all of you will as well. Thank you. Midway through the Clintons' first term, historian Carl Anthony interviewed the First Lady as part of a forum hosted by George Washington University. One young woman asked when Americans would elect a woman to the White House. If he had decided not to go into politics, or if perchance you hadn't met at school, thinking back before you met him, do you think you yourself might have pursued a political career? 
probably not in elective office. I, I think that there are so many ways to serve, and I would be involved in my community wherever that was, and I would be, I hope, working on issues that I care about um, no matter where I was. Um, but I don't know that I would have pursued an elective, no. What do you think, perhaps, this is another way of asking, what do you think, in terms of the reaction you get from people when you meet them in the mail, you symbolize do you, to, to, the, to the people at large? Or do you, are you many things to many people? Well, again, probably. I mean, we get such wonderful letters from people, and I have such a great time traveling around the country talking to people. And so sometimes people articulate what they're thinking about me, or whether, you know, sometimes it's critical as well as, as positive. And so then I get something of an insight into that person. Um, but mostly I believe that for women today, there are so many options in our lives. That can be scary as well as very exciting. And I think women who are challenged and hopeful about those options, whether they are full-time homemakers or whether they are full-time career or whether they, like most of us, are balancing you know, family and work and all of the responsibilities, they may see me and say, well, you know, this is a woman who's trying to do what I'm doing. And for people who maybe are not as hopeful or as um, embracing of these new opportunities for women, then the way that I have lived my life and my desire to really pull my life together and to have, you know, the marriage, the motherhood, the opportunity to work, the belief in committing myself to my community, that may seem a little bit off-putting. So I think it's so much as what people see through the lens of their own experience. What were your own expectations of the role of First Lady be perhaps as a young woman um, and then before you got to the White House after the election and, and, and now? And I'm wondering if you could just, has that changed you? I mean, and in what way? Well, you know, I don't know as a little girl that I had any expectations about First Ladies. Um, we never really saw very much of um, Mrs. Truman who was First Lady when I was born, or Mrs. Eisenhower, except, you know, on special occasions. So really, Mrs. Kennedy was the first First Lady that just absolutely blasted open our consciousness. And there wasn't anyone like her. I mean, I didn't know anyone at all like her. And uh, we would all just, you know, watch her. And the, to me, the most extraordinary accomplishment is the way she handled all of those responsibilities at such what I now see as a very young age. Um, because I know when I was that age, my husband was elected governor, which is a much, much smaller uh, stage by a long shot. And I can remember showing up at the Arkansas governor's mansion and not having a clue about what I was supposed to do. I mean, neither my husband nor I had ever lived in a house that big. We had never had anybody cook our meals. We had never had people there to clean up after us. Um, it was astonishing. And I remember the first night we were there, we walk into the kitchen and we said, can we help? And this woman who'd been the cook, you know, for 30 years looked like we were crazy. Um, and so we, I had a lot of learning to do at that level, and I saw 
you know, Mrs. Kennedy moving into her role with, you know, such grace and just marvelous ability to pull it together. And then, of course, I admired Mrs. Johnson so much because I thought that um, she had a voice of her own, which she used, and she promoted causes that she cared very much about. Uh, And then as, you know, the years went by and I had an opportunity actually to meet um, some of the women who were in this role, like Mrs. Carter, whom I greatly admired and uh, watched uh, work very hard on behalf of uh, causes she and her husband were committed to, uh, and Mrs. Reagan and Mrs. Bush, I saw the enormous amount of work that it takes to try to do this and to do it in a way that is both in keeping with your own identity and integrity and also fulfilling the responsibilities. And my admiration for these women grew. Uh, And then I got interested during the campaign in reading history. And I was so pleased you made some of those references because there's hardly been a first that has happened uh, in the 20th century because so many of the women in the 19th century were there ahead of us. When we were talking before about uh, people's reactions um, to the way you've made choices as First Lady, and I think of the acrimony that certainly occurred, particularly in the final weeks of the, of the health care debate, um, as well as last year in the winter, the, the uh, ec- speculation and so forth during Whitewater. If, do you believe that had you taken a less public role, in a sense operated like the first ladies of the 19th century, which was you know, behind the scenes and then essentially deny it publicly. But if you had been working on it, health care behind the scenes, or had taken to the public, shown this just very traditional role, and I don't know anything about anything, and then <laughs> behind the scenes really been in on the cabinet meetings and so forth, do you think it would have had a different impact in those two particular very uh, public issues, Whitewater and, and the health care debate? Well, I don't know. My husband and friends would probably have had me committed. Um, that would not be at all in my nature and my background. I mean, I, for better or worse, um, have spoken out on public issues for 25 years and uh, have been deeply identified with issues I care about and have been on record for many years about issues that are of concern to me. And I think some kind of... Um, Uh, First Lady amnesia would not have been very um, credible under the circumstances. Oh, you mean I said that? Oh, well, I can't imagine. Um, I think that it is probably better to be yourself, and it is always a risk, um, but it is something that I feel very comfortable with, and I am very, um, very interested in public life and in political issues. I, you know, I'm one of those kids who, you know, decorated her bike every 4th of July and, you know, read the Constitution out loud with my dad. And, you know, we, I really care about this country and its government. So for me, if I were at home in Little Rock, Arkansas, or if I had never met Bill Clinton and I had gone home to Chicago, I would be expressing my opinions to my friends and, you know, over coffee or around the water cooler. And I don't see how I could change who I am because of the position I'm in. And I actually think that in the long run, if people have some 
better idea about you. It may be controversial, but at least they know where you stand. And so that's what I have got to do. I don't really have a choice about that, I don't think. Another thing we've talked about in this class a lot is the, the if and more likely when a woman president will come in. And I'd like to know your opinion and thoughts about what you think may have to happen before that happens. Well, I have said and I believe that there's a good possibility that sometime in the next 20 years we will have a woman president. And I say that because I think that there are a number of women who are governors, senators, members of Congress, uh, who are really coming to the forefront and uh, are doing so in ways that will engender national support and national attention. Uh, so I think that it's something that I may actually live long enough to see, um, I hope, and I certainly believe you will. You're listening to First Ladies in Their Own Words, and we'll be right back. In January 1997, as she embarked on a second term as First Lady, Hillary Clinton reflected in a C-SPAN interview on her first four years in the White House. And she talked about the public's conflicting attitudes about what First Ladies should and should not do. I care about politics. I mean, that may not be a wise thing for a person married to a president to say, but it would be untrue if I were not to say that. I care about politics. I care about uh, the state of life in this country. I care about our government. I care about the public policy issues that uh, come through the door of the White House because they require the president and the administration and the country to pay attention. Um, I've always cared about it. Ever since I was a little girl, I will care about it long after my husband is out of the White House. So I'm not about to uh, start caring about things that I've never cared about because it's not appropriate in somebody else's mind for me to continue to care about what I've always cared about. So the rules are not any different than how I've lived my life. It just happens to be that my husband has a different job and uh, we live in the White House and uh, for four more years, that's what we'll be doing. I think what has been most curious to me is how um, people are very concerned about uh, this position. And on the one hand, people want uh, a uh, wife of a president to be concerned and caring about the issues confronting the country and to work on something of uh, uh, public interest. On the other hand, they don't want her to do it in a public uh, way on a policy uh, level. They don't want, um, you know, when I worked on health care, a lot of people thought that I shouldn't be making recommendations about legislation um, or that I shouldn't be involved in working on behalf of what my husband asked me to work on, which was one of his primary um, objectives, um, because they thought that that was somehow inappropriate, uh, that if you exercise influence, do it behind the scenes where nobody can see you. I find that curious. I mean, to me, I'd like to know what goes on in front of the scenes um, because uh, I'm very, um, very much the kind of person who believes that you should say what you mean and mean what you say and, and take the consequences. I mean, just like anybody else uh, who's involved in uh, public life. So in, to some extent, I think that misunderstanding comes with the territory. And certainly in going back and reading about all of my predecessors in this position, it certainly seems that almost regardless of what they wanted to do or tried to do. Um, it's an anomalous kind of situation. And I think Americans are rightly concerned about unelected power, unaccountable power. But then if you try to become accountable by taking a public position, 
they're concerned about that as well and want you to retreat and go ahead and exercise power that is behind the scenes. So I don't think it'll ever get sorted out completely. Even when engaging in what outwardly seemed to be traditional first lady events, Hillary Clinton put her own mark on her role. Here she is at the Smithsonian in 1995, donating her inaugural ground to their collection. We are also grateful that this museum and the curators within it care so much about displaying the entire history of our country and giving some context historically, socially, and politically to the women whose gowns are often one of the most sought after visits in Washington as tourists and Americans and people really from all over the world stand in line. We now will be able to share with these visitors not only the beauty of the gowns, but also something more about the women who wore them. I must say this is a bittersweet moment to give this dress up. <laughs> it is not something that I came to lightly, and as you'll notice, we're into the third year of my husband's term before this has occurred. I hope all of you will have a chance not only to admire the gowns, but also to look carefully at the rest of the exhibition. With historic photographs and illustrations, campaign memorabilia, furniture, silver and china, from Martha Washington to Barbara Bush and now to me, we can gain a new appreciation, not just of first ladies, but also of women's history and presidential politics in the course of our great country's history. From their political role to their public image to their private lives, each first lady has shaped her position based on her own past experiences, interests, and aspirations. I have certainly been inspired by the women who came before me, and I have learned so much in reading about their lives. I often have hoped that more Americans could learn more about these women and not just see them as stereotypes or cardboard cutouts, because each of them had a rich history which she brought to the White House. And many of them, I think, would be quite surprising, even to people today, to read what they wrote, to read what they said, and to understand the roles they played in influencing their husbands and the course of American politics. Actually, I take some comfort in that because it is probably true to say that everything which has ever been said about any of us was said about one of the other of us. In the waning days of the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton debuted her book, An Invitation to the White House, At Home with History. Here she is speaking in the East Room. And as Bill said, I don't think that um, any of us uh, have ever walked into this house uh, without that sense of awe uh, overcoming us. Uh, and if you ask why I would write this book, I suppose, you know, the answer is that um, that sense of awe is something I want to share. Um, because for me, the history that has been written here that has really changed the course of America and the world for the better um, is something that I want everyone in our country to appreciate. You know, not everybody, even with a million and a half visitors a year, will be able to come to the White House. But I hope that either through 
purchasing this book or going to the library, people will have a chance to see what we see and which I hope will never be taken for granted. Even after living here for eight years, I can still remember my first glimpse of the White House as a young girl visiting Washington with my family. And uh, we didn't go on the tour, but we stood outside and peered through the gate, as I often see people from my windows doing. And I think back to what it felt like when I was, you know, 10 years old, peering through those gates, thinking about the people who lived there and what had happened uh, in the years uh, before I was even born. Now, some of the rooms that you've seen on this tour have, of course, changed over time. As Carter said, it used to be the custom that, you know, exiting presidents and first families would, you know, take parts of the White House with them um, or auction them off. Uh, and so there wasn't any sense of continuity as there is today. But it's equally true that tastes have changed. Uh, when we redid the state dining room, there were, I have to say, some purists among us, uh, not me, but others, who said that we should go back to the original Teddy Roosevelt renovation. So I called Betty Monkman and I asked for the pictures. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and I don't see as well as I used to. So, you know, I was peering at these pictures. And, and so I put on my reading glasses and I, I think I said to Betty or whoever was standing near, are these heads on the wall? Uh, you know, and we, we called for enlargements and, and, and they're surrounding the diners in the state dining room were, you know, the head of a moose and the head of an elk and the head of, you know, nine other big game that uh, President Roosevelt uh, had bagged and wanted uh, to share with his guests. And we had a couple of very vigorous discussions in the Committee for the Preservation of the White House because there were those who thought we should call the Smithsonian and call Teddy Roosevelt's uh, library and, and ask for the return of the heads. Um, but, you know, um, there, there, is a, there is a certain... I haven't done it often, but there is a, a certain, you know, privilege of position that goes with being... First Lady, I mean, there are, you know, not that you would notice, there are some downsides uh, in being First Lady, but, you know, every once in a while, you know, you can, you can say, I'm sorry, no heads on the wall. As we close our look at Hillary Clinton, you'll hear from her as she transitioned from First Lady to political candidate and then United States Senator. She embarked in the summer of 1999 on what she called a listening tour of New York, not quite a year later, she was speaking to the New York Democratic Convention as a candidate for U.S. Senate. On Election Day 2000, she became Senator-elect Clinton. Still ahead of her were two more titles, Secretary of State and Democratic Presidential Nominee. You'll hear from her first at the New York Convention and then during freshman senator orientation. This is Hillary Clinton in her own words. that the president is here this evening and I am so grateful I am so grateful for his support I would not be standing here tonight were it not for Bill and were it not for all he has done for me 
And I could not be prouder as an American and as a New Yorker to have a president who has meant so much to our country. We are a better country than we were in 1992. I pledge to you that I will work my heart out every day in this campaign to become your next senator. And I will work I will work every day in the Senate to keep faith with you, with the values and the ideals of the Democratic Party of New York, because make no mistake about it. This election is not about me or about any Republican opponent. It is about the people of New York and the common mission that we are pledged to. What is that mission? Well, I think it is to strengthen our families and protect our children, to improve our schools and extend health care to every New Yorker, to free our families and communities from the terror of gun violence, to strengthen Social Security and modernize Medicare, to ensure America's continued leadership in the world. Because despite the strides and progress we've made, there are still too many forgotten New Yorkers. <laughs> I do a lot of things together. Right. How are you going to become the former first lady and become the senator? Well, I've had a very good day. Uh, John and I have been going through orientation together, and uh, I think that uh, for me, it's been the um, the great privilege to be here especially with the other new senators with whom I'll serve, um, all of whom are impressive and uh, as committed as John and I are to the work ahead. And I was just thinking, you know, I hadn't uh, spent much time in this building since uh, uh, 1974 when I worked for the Congress and 1968 when I was an intern. So uh, I'm delighted to be back and rediscovering uh, the beauty of uh, the Capitol. I think that all of us who just uh, listened to Senator Byrd were uh, struck by um, not only the history, uh, but the challenges that each time faces. Uh, he really put uh, into perspective some of the early challenges that uh, senators in the beginning of the 19th century faced all the way to the present time. Uh, and that just increases uh, our feeling of responsibility um, that this day has uh, impressed upon us. Senator K. Bailey Hutchinson today said that you're kind of a blank slate as far as the impressions that are up here are concerned. How will you make your mark? How do you plan to, to make your impression up here? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to learn that I am. Uh, <laughs> that's very good news. I, I intend to work as hard as I can and to uh, represent the people of New York to the best of my ability. Uh, to work hard to serve my constituents, to work with my colleagues wherever and whenever I can on behalf of our country. Uh, so I'm absolutely hoping to build relationships and uh, create consensus with 
uh, every senator. Is there any work to do, though, to overcome being a, a first lady and, and now a senator? Well, I think that will uh, develop over time. Uh, certainly, I've tried in uh, uh, my campaign and in the weeks since the election to make clear that uh, you know I intend to uh, shoulder the responsibility of being a senator. I am not uh, adverse to hard work, and I expect to be working very hard to learn a lot because there's a lot to learn, as we have already seen today. Next week, Laura Bush, a one-time librarian who became First Lady.